or so. So just to refresh your memory, we ended off in chapter 8 where Saul was persecuting the church as many of the early believers were spreading the gospel. The last account was Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian official that trusted in Jesus and then eventually was baptized. Philip was taken away by the Spirit to go preach the gospel to other people. Now today in chapter 9, where we pick up, we're going to learn about the conversion of Saul. So we're going to study through the account, and then we're going to make some observations and applications along the way. So many of you probably know this, but Saul was a devout and highly educated Jew. He studied under a man named Gamaliel, which, who was a Pharisee. And you might remember Gamaliel from chapter 5, when basically the believers were rising up, and Gamaliel was the guy who said, you know what, let's just leave these believers alone, because if this, this following of, that Jesus has, if this is not of God, it's just going to die out. But if it is of God, you are going to be fighting against God, and that's a losing battle. So the first time then we see Saul was back at the end of chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned, when he was killed, the first martyr, for his faith. The witnesses of the event then went and cast their coats down at the foot of Saul, which actually signified Saul's approval of Stephen's murder. Then we see him again in chapter 8, making house-to-house -house searches for believers, dragging them out of their house and bringing them to prison. So at this point, the believers fled to Damascus because they were in harm's way. So they fled to a place called Damascus, and that's where we pick up in chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now we see Saul is enraged at the teachings of Jesus, that it's spreading, that the gospel's spreading, that the believers are in Damascus. So he goes to the high priest and he says, I need permission, I need letters written to the synagogues in Damascus for you to allow me to take any of these believers and drag them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison. So notice at this point, the believers in Jesus were referred to as the way. Okay, this is probably because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We'll later see in Acts chapter 11 where the believers are first called Christians. And when we get there, we'll talk about that. So Saul was on a mission. He was on a mission to stop these new believers, and he had permission from the religious leaders and the authorities to actually bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison. Very unfair for the believers, right? Well, sometimes we're treated unfairly, right? As Christians, sometimes we're treated unfairly for what we believe, maybe even threatened. That probably doesn't happen here as much as it does in other countries as far as the threatened part. But you know what? here as believers in our culture, right? I don't know if you felt this, but people have this kind of mindset. You could believe anything you want. Everything's cool, unless you're a Christian, right? Unless you're a Christian, because us Christians are narrow-minded. There's only one truth, right? So you can believe anything you want, but not Christianity. So it's unfair, but the truth is, as believers, that should not stop us. Okay, so these early believers were not stopped by the threats. 
Here's what they did. They just figured ways around it. They just figured out ways around it, ways to avoid the harm and ways to avoid the threats. So they went to this place called Damascus. But Saul wanted to catch up with them. He wanted to catch up with them, and here's what happens. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So this a unique experience happens. A bright light, a loud voice asking him a question. Why are you persecuting me? And here's what Saul says. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul asked a question. Who are you, Lord? Which he automatically realizes this is the voice of God calling him. This is the voice of God calling him. Now remember, Saul was a religious Jew. So he had faith in God, but he was not convinced that Jesus was God. In fact, he thought the opposite. You know, most of us, like when we read this, we judge Saul harshly. We're like, this guy is trying to wipe out early Christians and this and that. But the truth is, Saul thought he was doing the work of God. He actually thought he was doing, he thought he was on a mission to protect the one true God. So when he saw the light and heard the voice, the automatic response was, this must be the voice of God. But then the groundbreaking news happens, right? Jesus introduces himself. This was groundbreaking for Saul because now the voice of God says, I'm Jesus. I am Jesus. Do you remember when you first admitted and realized Jesus was God? Do you remember that time? Some of you do. You remember that time. I remember that time. I was 18 years old. I always heard about Jesus. I was brought up in church, like in the Catholic church, seeing pictures of Jesus, learning different things, but never made the connection that Jesus, in fact, was God, that I was a sinner who needed to be saved by Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin, that he rose from the grave to prove that he is God. And he said to me and to all of you, if you believe me, you will have eternal life. I remember that moment. This was Saul's moment. Do you remember that moment where you were like, it, it makes sense. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. He was waiting for me. He loves me. He had a gift for me. It's always been Jesus. See, a point of interest here is Jesus said to Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, you know what this communicates to us? That when Christians are persecuted, Jesus takes personal offense. The reason why, in John chapter 10, Jesus claims unity with all who believes. So if people mess with Christians, they're messing with Jesus. This is pretty easy to understand, right? If you're a parent, somebody messes with your kid, you're like, ah, oh, it's all right, as long as they don't mess with me, right? No. You're like, don't mess with my kid. Like, this is a problem. I can mess with my kid. You can't, okay? So that's what Jesus is saying, okay? He's like, you are persecuting me. You're messing with my kid. 
So here's what happens. Jesus continues and says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now Saul also had some traveling companions and here is what happened with them. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They were speechless and they also heard the instructions as well. So they didn't see, but they heard. So let's see what happens. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, kind of want to back up a little bit because here Jesus gives instructions and Saul's response and his companion's response was immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. Notice Saul did not even try to explain myself. When Jesus said, it's Jesus who you're persecuting, he wasn't like, but, 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 like, I was doing it. I have a good heart. I'm telling you. Like, he did not say anything, okay? He just obeyed. He never answered the question that Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, here's my reason. Here's my justification for it. Here's why I did it. I've got to explain it all to you. He never did any of that. Now I want to ask you, what is your response when you know there's something the Lord wants you to do? Is it immediate obedience? You know, I talk a lot about having like a daily time, like, you know, starting your day in devotions or in your evening with devotions and stuff. Have you noticed when you do this stuff, the Lord kind of starts tapping you on the shoulder? Hey, you know that thing you're doing? You shouldn't be doing. You're like, no, I don't want to listen, right? And then you turn on the radio, and it happens to be on a Christian station that you never even heard before, and it's talking about that. And you're like, nope, I don't like that. Then you come to church, and you're like, oh, Pastor Mike, he's talking about it now. And you just will not obey, right? You will not obey. You just keep on going. But the message here is this. Saul obeyed immediately. Do you learn what you should do from the scriptures and then you spend time thinking of reasons why you can't do it now? Justifications for why you're doing what you're doing and why you can't be obedient? Or do you say, I'll start tomorrow or I'll start next week or I'll start next month or I'll start in the spring, right? Or there's a January 1st coming up soon. I missed the first one this year, okay? Let me just warn you. If you do not practice immediate obedience, you're just taking the long road, okay? You are just taking the long road. When we're not obedient, we just add more struggles, more consequences, more misery to our lives, and sadly, to the lives of others, to the lives of the people around you. Maybe that's you right now. You're hurting people around you because you won't obey the Lord, okay? Or maybe you are being hurt by someone in your life because they won't obey the Lord. Eventually, we're going to be brought to the place where we have to say, I agree, God. You're right, and I am wrong. You're right, and I am wrong. We should obey, right? For you parents here, if your parents, especially have young children, teach your kids immediate obedience. Teach them that. It's going to help them in every area of life. It's going to help them in every area of life. 
and more importantly, it's going to help them in their spiritual life. So as Saul got up, he could not see. His companions led him into Damascus. They were immediately obedient. There were no more questions from Saul. He was awestruck. He didn't eat or drink. We'll later see he was spending time in prayer. There's a good possibility this not eating or drinking was a fast, which would not be out of the ordinary for a religious Jew. But next we have this scene. So it jumps from this scene to another scene, to a disciple in Damascus. And here's what happens. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias had a vision from the Lord, and he instructed him to go to Saul. He is told that Saul is praying and saw a vision with him in it that he was going to go and lay his hands on him, and he was going to receive his sight back. So let's see how Ananias responds. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias didn't obey immediately. He questioned out of concern. He knew what Saul was up to, what permission he received from the chief priests. And evidently, Jesus doesn't seem like he's too annoyed or mad at the questions and the hesitation, because here is Jesus' response. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So now, Jesus gives Ananias a couple of reasons. He says, Saul's a chosen instrument meaning that Jesus had a lot of gospel work for Saul to do. Now, being on this side of the completion of the New Testament, we all know that Saul later changed his name to Paul, and he actually penned 60% of the New Testament. He was mightily used by God, and we're going to see that as we study through Acts. But second, notice this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Nobody takes that verse out of context and puts it on their wall, right? Here's the blessing. Welcome to my house. I'm going to suffer, okay? So here's the thing. We eventually see Paul does suffer for the mission because it's difficult. But the question that comes up that we don't really have the full answer to is why did God allow Saul to suffer if he was going to be obedient to the calling? Because as you see the life of Paul, you see a lifetime of obedience. So you might look at this and ask, is he suffering for his past sins against the early believers? Kind of like a Christian karma thing, like, see what you did there? Now I'm going to get you, okay? I'm not so sure I would go there. I'm not sure I would go there. I think the best way to understand this is this. None of us are immune to suffering, even the most obedient of us. None of us are immune to suffering, 
even the most obedient. You might have a situation right now in which you're questioning God. Why is this happening to me? Why am I not healthy? Why did I lose somebody? Why do I have financial troubles? Whatever the why is, you might be wondering, you're suffering, so why is this happening? And I think you're asking the wrong question. I think the question you should be asking or the questions you should be asking are, what can I learn from this? What needs to change in my life? How is God going to use this to help someone else maybe in my life? How is God preparing me to help someone else? Where, I've been, where have I been going wrong? And maybe this is a direct result of some sins that I've been committing. How can I correct that and move forward so I can be more pleasing to you? You see, I say this a lot, and you've heard me say this, but we tend to expect the good from God, right? When good things happen, we're like, yep, mm, yeah. And then when something bad happens, we're like, why? Why did you do this to me? Let me just tell you this. I've never experienced a person that fares well spiritually that continues to blame God for suffering. Never. 27 years of ministry, I've never had someone fare well spiritually when they continue to shake their fist at God, when they continue to do that. We will all suffer no matter how obedient we are, okay? We're not playing this game with God like, okay, God, I'm going to be a good boy and everything good's going to happen to me, right? And then if I stray off, you're going to smack me around a little bit and then I'm going to come. That's not the way God works, okay? It's not the way God works. Some of the most obedient people will suffer and the reason why is we live in a sin-cursed world with sinful people and suffering does exist, but one day... Jesus makes all things new, we will suffer no more. And that's what you and I as believers, the hope and the promise that we have. So in this life, there's going to be suffering. We're living a sin-cursed world. So here's what happens. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Ananias obeyed, went to Saul, laid his hands on him, prayed. Passage said at this time Saul was also filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, like we talked about earlier in Acts, this is a special circumstance. We don't need someone to lay hands on us to receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that we believe we receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 helps us understand that a little bit better. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So basically, when you and I believe in Jesus, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Best way kind of my mind sees this is if you ever go to get something notarized, right? They take that little clippy thing out and they, they make like the paper bumpy and you're like, oh, and you can't do anything about it, right? That's what God does to us, okay? He seals us for the prom for the for as a guarantee of our inheritance, okay? So basically what this is talking about is actually eternal security. Once you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit, 
you are saved and guaranteed for eternity. You cannot lose your salvation. It's called the doctrine of eternal security. There are some out there that don't believe it. I'll tell them to their face, they're wrong, okay? You show them this verse, okay, and many others, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Romans talks about. The truth is, when you become a believer, you are saved and secure by the Holy Spirit, sealed for that day as a guarantee. So let's see what happens with Saul. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus. So Saul's sight restored. He responded in baptism because he trusted Jesus. He ate and spent time with other believers. This is a small glimpse of fellowship, right? Small glimpse of fellowship. When we see other believers getting baptized, we're encouraged by that. We're encouraged in our faith. When we spend time around other believers, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, we're reminded of our connection to them in Jesus and our shared mission together. That's why we have fellowship opportunities, right? But remember, Paul or Saul at this point was out to destroy these believers. And now he was one of them. So Saul was out to destroy these believers, and now he was one of them. Not only is this an amazing act of God in Saul's life, Saul's life this is a testimony of those believers, right? I mean, think about it. We're here together as believers, right? But if we knew there was somebody out in the community going around, like, bringing down believers, right? And then he came in the door and was like, yo, I'm one of you. We'd be like, I don't know, dude. Like, <laughs> let's surround this guy. Make sure, like, pat him down. We would be a little critical, right? cynical. We'd be like, is, is, this, is this real? Like, is this real? So this is a testimony to those early believers, they were willing to accept Saul into their fellowship, knowing that by his orders, some of their friends got killed. Think about that. Some of their friends got killed by this man's orders. Now he's like, yo, I'm one of you guys. This is an act of radical forgiveness that the world really can't grasp or understand. I, as a believer, have a hard time grasping and understanding it. But then... I turn to Jesus because I know that he forgave me. And I know that he forgave you when you trust in him. So we as believers, because we're forgiven, we're called to forgive. Now maybe right now there's someone in your life that you need to accept and forgive. Here's what you need to do. You need to pray and ask the Lord for the power to do it. You need to pray and ask the Lord for the power to do it because you can't do it on your own. You need to pray and ask the Lord for the power to do it, how that looks in your life, because that's what God's called you to do. He's called you to forgive because you have been forgiven. So after this time that Saul spent praying and in fellowship with other believers, here's what he did. He got to work. Look what he did. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. This is where we see a few other reasons Jesus chose Saul. Because of his upbringing, his education, and his position in Judaism, he had access that not many others would have. He had access, a voice in the synagogue. Not only that, he was bold. 
He was bold before he knew the truth, right? He was bold in his mission. He was like, I got to stop this because this goes against God. But then he realized that Jesus is God. And guess what? He was just as bold, even probably more so. Just as bold. Because now he knew the truth. The truth that sets people free. So he knew he had to get that out. But Saul had access that not many others have. I say this a lot, but you have access to places that other, people's don't, other people don't have. Your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates. Other Christians might not have any access to them, but God has placed you in the very places that you are. We're going to talk about that in Acts 17. But God placed you there to be his witness, to be bold with the gospel. So notice what Saul leads with. These are the first things out of his mouth after this whole thing. If you're tracking along, out of this whole thing. It says, he is the son of God. Translation, I was wrong before. He is the son of God. I learned in all of my religion, in all of my Judaism, in all of my upbringing, everything that I learned that pointed to this moment, he is the son of God. And I am sure of it. One of the expected responses of the people came out, and it was this. And all who heard were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has not he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So the religious Jews were like, wait, what's going on here? Isn't this the guy who did this, this, and this? You may have faced this when you became a believer. If you became a believer later in life, you probably faced this. People that knew you before you became a believer, they, oh yeah, sure, <laughs> you've changed, right? Sure, you changed. Didn't you used to do this? Or don't you still do that? Or didn't, he, or didn't you used to say that you didn't believe that, but now you do? Now you're some kind of holy person, Right? Well, my encouragement to you is if you're getting those critics, if you're getting those people, hang in there. For most people, it's just a short time that they actually see that there is a change. You'll have some characters out there that it takes a couple of decades to convince. But my encouragement is this. It keeps you on your toes, right? It keeps you on your toes, keeps your focus on the Lord to continue to do what God has called you to do. So let's see how Saul responds. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't let the critics get to him. He didn't let them discourage him. He studied, prayed, preached, grew in the Lord, got the message out about Jesus. How about you? Do you let those critics get to you? Do you shrink back? Or do you just stay focused on the mission, getting the gospel out? to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have opportunities to tell people about you, but even more than that, we're so thankful that you loved us so much that you saved us. We look at this example of one of the greatest servants in the history of the church, 
how you radically came into his life and changed him. And he was immediately obedient to the call. We pray that we're obedient to whatever call that you have on our life. But most importantly, that that call of preaching the gospel is in our lives and and we spend time doing that with the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray.